I love U.S. history. President Calvin Coolidge, he was not known for uh, his gift of speaking. Uh, he was a, more of a quiet, introverted man. But a story was told that one Sunday he attended worship without his wife. His wife was at home and he went on to church and he returned home. She asked what the preacher had talked about while uh, she was away. And he kind of quietly and, and, and real direct, he said, well, he preached on sin. And she said, well, what did the preacher have to say about sin? And he said that, uh, Calvin Coolidge replied, he said that he's against it. And you know, uh, often we, we try to make much of sin, but, but if I were to put a, 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 a summary of Zechariah chapter 5, we will find that God is against sin. I know that sounds real simple, but you're going to see what I mean. We, we've come to a, a text. I, I want to preach to you a little bit on this. What does God think of my sin? What does God think about our sin? My sin, your sin, all of our sin. What does God really think about it? Go with me in verse 1. Uh, we see that he is, he is the, the, that night vision that Zechariah had of the golden lampstand attached to both olive trees. We see the flowing of the, of the Spirit of God into the life where that flame will not go out, that fire will not go out in the life of Zechariah. And, and I believe it's that Zechariah turns his attention from the lampstand and the angel says, well, what do you see now, Zechariah? And Zechariah now sees a flying scroll in the air and he gives the dimensions of this scroll uh, to uh, Zechariah. The Bible says in verse number 2, it's the length thereof is 20 cubits and the breadth thereof is 10 cubits. Cubits, So it's a large scroll that he gives in this sixth vision to uh, Zechariah. Now understand in these, both these two visions in Zechariah 5, we must keep in mind that their ultimate fulfillment will be during the future millennial reign of Jesus Christ. If you were to go over to Revelation chapter 17, 18 and 19, you'll read that Christ will rule during that millennial reign with a wrought iron. He will be there to judge uh, sin and Satan will be bound. Oh, it's encouraging verses and I, I certainly uh, ask you to go and read it at some point and study it out. Sin will not prevail during the righteous reign on the earth under the Messiah's reign. But while this vision refers to that future uh, glorious uh, reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, it also applies to every generation. That is me, that is you, that is where we are in this current state, that is, that is nation of Israel now, that is where we are. As I said earlier, all of the Bible was not written to us, but it was certainly written for our good. And we see Zechariah looks up and he sees a flying scroll that is open. It is flat. Its dimensions are 20 cubits and 10 cubits, 30 by 15 feet, 30 feet by 15 feet. That is writing on both sides. One side proclaims that everyone who steals will be purged away. The other side proclaims that everyone who swears falsely by God's name will be purged away. 
away. So the Lord declares that it will track down every violator. It's spending the night in their home and not only consuming them, but consuming the very timber and the stone that makes up their house. That is an interesting vision. God is going to judge the sin. Now we see in the first picture, we tried to put this up there for you, on the very first picture to the left, we put number one, if you can see it, that is the picture of what we would think a flying scroll would look like. There's writings on both sides. I believe the writing would be that of the Ten Commandments because he speaks about it in verse number four. He said, I will bring forth, saith the Lord of hosts, or verse three rather, uh, no, verse four, it'll enter into the house of the thief, there it is, thou shalt not uh, steal. So the thief Uh, is is commanded there. And then also in the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name uh, in vain. So we have both of those that are mentioned. I believe the first four uh, Ten Commandments is dealing with our relationship with God. I believe the last uh, of the, the Ten Commandments is dealing with our relationship with man. I believe both are pictured on the scroll. And Zechariah sees this scroll. And then God says, I'm going to judge Israel for the fact that they have disobeyed God. This is the standard of uh, the, the measure of sin that I'm going to judge. The first thing that we come to is we see that God will be relentless in judging individual sins of His people. This is the flying scroll. God will judge the individual sins of His people. So what does God think about my sin? Well, we, we see according to the standard of the Word of God, that this is how God will judge it. The first thing we come to is realizing the standard for God's judgment to steal. I believe it's still wrong. You know, you don't hear a lot of messages on stealing anymore. We think that's childish. But, but can I just say, if it was important to Zechariah, it's important to God. And if it's important to God, it should be important to us. And if he says that he's going to judge a nation according to their, their, their being thieves, and he's going to send judgment into their house, it is still wrong for us to steal today. Amen. And then he says, I'm going to judge the house of him that sweareth falsely. Listen to me. I believe that the name of God is a holy name. I believe the name of God should be reverence. And I believe any time that you stub your toe or you get mad or you get excited or you hear news that is, that is uh, maybe shocking by you using the name of God in a way that is not holy and reverence, it is using the name of the Lord uh, in an in a unholy name. It's, 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 it's taking the Lord's name in vain. And my friend, listen, I know again we don't hear much preaching on that, but I do believe that the name of God is holy And when we use God, we ought to put it in a reverence way. Amen? In a reverence way. And so those are some simple things that we can get from the the, uh, uh, context of this. But I was reading in a a magazine, this was really an article that was published about 15 years ago in a magazine called Christianity Today. It's not a real conservative magazine to be honest it used to be but it is not much today but but they 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 put this poll out for some residents that lived in the state of Iowa and they were asked to rank 14 activities as either a major sin a minor sin or not a sin now most labeled the the extramarital uh 
sexual uh, partners and, and homosexuality as major sins. Fifteen years ago, they, they labeled an affair or uh, extramarital uh, sex and homosexuality as major sins. I wonder if today, 15 years later, we would even call them major sins. I don't think there's really a major sin in the eyes of God. Sin is sin, right? But there are some sins that's labeled an abomination. We know that. So there are some sins, I believe, that make God nauseated. They, they infuriate his, Him and make Him uh, pour out His wrath. And we see that though according to us uh, as people, most label those two sins as major sins. Premarital sex ranked below lying and smoking uh, drugs, going to X-rated movies or having them in your home, swearing, uh, drinking hard liquor, skipping church on Sundays, looking at pornographic magazines were all predominantly raked as minor sins. Isn't that something? Most people viewed even some things that we might would view as sin, even there, there's some areas in the Bible would, would, uh, would call some things sin. They even said that's not a sin. So they were just, ask, they were just asking these, these people to rank sin on how you see it. And it was sad to see. This was 15 years ago. Now, without passing judgments, I'm not here to preach on any particular sin. I believe all of us in here would understand what sin is and what sin is not. And if we go down the list, we could understand what sin is. And I could probably get a good hoop and a holler out of you if I hit on some sins. But it's, it's one of those things where we're just going to have to do some self-examination. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul is dealing with the church at Corinth and he, he's teaching them about the Lord's Supper. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. We partook of the Lord's Supper a couple weeks ago and it was beautiful. We'll do it again around the Christmas season. and it, It's always such a, a, a great service and, and, and really a, a wonderful service that we can examine ourselves. That's what Paul told them. He said, examine yourselves. Look inside your heart. Ask yourself this, this morning... Where is my relationship with the Lord right now? Is there sin in my life that would hinder my relationship with the Lord? I believe all of us in here, if we were very, very transparent and very honest with ourselves and honest with the Lord, we could say there is something between us and the Savior that right now I've, I've yet to confess to a holy God. I've yet to get right about it. And, and you know what? I don't Listen, I can preach on those sins that we know good and well are sinful that many of us would not be participating in, but there are some of those sins that we could preach on this morning and it would be as quiet as it is right now. Because there's some sins like pride, like lying, like thinking bad thoughts, like gossip, like other things that we often struggle with. That's what I would call a secret sin. And God hates those sins as well. I would urge my Christian sisters in here this morning and Christian brothers not to determine modest apparel as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 9 by using some popular music star or some popular movie star and just looking and saying, well, so-and-so's wearing it, so it must be okay. Can I tell you something? We can't judge it by the world. We must go back to the book and notice what God has to say about modest apparel. 
You understand that sin is sin. And the Bible is written in black and white. And there's no uh, what I would call uh, area for uh, as far as gray area where we can... Now, where the Bible's quiet, we can, we can uh, have our own opinion and form our own uh, uh, view of it or something. But where the Bible is loud, we have no room for debate. We must obey. Amen. So we see what sin is. Without passing judgment on the items that I listed, I would just simply point out that if we determine morality by popular opinion, we'll drift downstream, way downstream. And can I say something about preachers? God does not give preachers a pass on sin. Sometimes preachers have the idea that they're doing God's work and they're feeding the flock and they're doing spiritual things and they're helping people. They're calling before surgery and they're praying with folks by bedside and they're doing funerals and they're feeding the flock of God. So, you know, if I do this little thing over here, God's not going to be that mad at me or God's not going to be that upset at my sin. No, 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 no. Listen, if anything, the way I read my Bible, a man of God should live above reproach and God hates my sin just like He hates your sin. And we're, we're all in this same uh, boat together. And so God doesn't look at one a different way than He looks at the other. We see that uh, in, according to this scroll, that God's standard for judgment is His Word. Now the extent of God's judgment is relentless and it is thorough. Why? Because the Bible says this. Look at verse number 2 uh, or verse number, uh, uh, let's see here, verse number 3. He said, Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the, where? The whole earth. The whole world is going to see the extent of God's judgment. And God's judgment is thorough. According to verse number 4, it says that it's going to go into the house of the thief and into the house of he that sweareth falsely by my name and it shall remain in the midst of the house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. So we think that we can secretly disobey God's standard which is the word of God. Uh, In our text... We see that if we think that we can disobey God's word and get away with it, we are deceiving ourselves. God will judge sin. And God promises to consume the house, including all that is in it, the timbers and the stones of those who call themselves by His name and who do not not judge themselves By His Word. Verse 4 shows us that sin is never in private. It always damages our homes. Sin destroys our communities. Sin destroys churches. There's churches within a drive right around me that sin has utterly destroyed that church. That church at one time was a booming, thriving church. Seeing people saved. Seeing members added to the church. Seeing a live service like we have experienced. Seeing great things happen. And here's what happened. Sin came into the church. It was never dealt with. And guess what sin does? If it's not dealt with as a church, it will end implode and then explode the whole community sees it that church goes from three or four hundred people down to fifty people it is now just a monument of what it was I've seen it happen in churches I've seen it happen in communities and I've seen it happen in marriages I'm not here to preach on divorce this morning 
And I don't want to sound harsh this morning, but marriage is, it takes two to have a good marriage. And all it takes for someone to have a bad marriage is for someone, either the man or the woman, to get involved in sin. And you say, well, pastor, we'll be okay for a while, and I I can hide this for a while, but let me tell you something. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Hey, don't be deceived this morning. Don't think in yourself that you are strong enough to handle sin. Sin will destroy your marriage. Amen. Fellas, can I tell you, men, can I tell you, husbands, can I tell you, if you have sin in your life and you have unconfessed sin, secret sin, it'd be good for you today to confess that sin to a holy God. He loves you. He died for that sin. He loves you and He wants your marriage to work. But if you're hanging on to that sin, can I tell you something? You are going to ruin your relationship with your spouse. Wife, if you're holding on to sin, I'm talking about bitterness and grudges and hate and all kinds of things, that will destroy a marriage. Listen, I'm seeing marriages fall apart. Why? Because of sin. Hey, it's time that we stand up to a holy God and confess our sin and say, by God's standard, I am going to live by that standard and try to be as God has made me just in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be holy and uh, as Romans Chapter 12 tells us to be holy and set apart. So, my friend, listen. If you have sin in your life, according to that first picture, the scroll, and we see the standard, look at the standard, examine yourselves, and look at yourself and say, am I into sin? Ask yourself that this morning privately. Am I right with God or am I wrong with God? Hey, it's not going to take a rocket scientist to figure that out. You, you're not, you know what you are. I know what I am. And listen, I have promised you, as I said earlier, I have studied this chapter and it has dealt with my heart and I cannot stand up here and be a hypocrite and look you in the eyes and tell you to do something that I have not done. I've examined myself whether I preach this this morning. I mean, I'll be honest with you. If I were to take a poll and ask you if you've ever heard a message preached out of Zechariah. I would say 98% of you has never even heard of Zechariah chapter 5 much less heard a message out of it and knowing exactly what a flying roll and a, and a woman sitting in an ephah means to you and so you'll read over that and you're thinking good grief that's the most bizarre thing I've ever Zechariah must have ate too much pizza before he went to bed I mean that's the craziest thing I've ever heard but it is an application we have sin and God detests sin That's what it is. Now, I want us to look at the second vision that we see. The first kind of explains to us that God will judge the individual's sin according to His standard. But secondly, God will do this. God will be relentless in purging the sins of His people while the world grows more wicked. God will purge the sins of His people while the world gets more wicked. Can I just give you a little news break this morning? Y'all ever get those breaking newses on your phone? Y'all got the apps already? So if you have a news app on your phone, all of a sudden it'll it'll, uh, beep or it'll uh, vibrate and and give you this breaking news. Every time breaking news comes across, I think, man, that's, I got to read this. Y'all get that? I got to read this. The world's falling apart. So I'll look at it. I'm like, man, that ain't breaking news. I've known that for a week. Y'all know what I mean? And they're just wanting to get your attention. Breaking news, I got some news for you today. The world's not going to get any better. It's not. 
According to Zechariah chapter 5 and according to Revelation 17, 18 and 9, the world is not going to get any better. Matter of fact, the Bible says the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the second coming, it's going to wax worse and worse. So we say, well, we just need to make the world a better place. No, you, you just need to work on being better. I need to work on being better and making the world around me better. But the world system and the world philosophy and the hate that is going on and all the things that is being taught right now to our young people and all the things that is being broadcast on the internet and the uh, TVs and all of the stuff that's being uh, infiltrated into our colleges and universities, all the things that's being passed down to the other generations, those things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. All these people that are marching in the streets saying death to Israel and, and uh, from, the river to the, from the land to the river and all that stuff they're saying from the river to the sea. Uh, they're, they're saying that basically a total annihilation. Those kids in the fifth grade don't know what from the river to the sea means unless some adult teaches them and shows them. Listen, what we have in our systems today is nothing but sin and an anti-God. And you say, well, Pastor, all we got to do is clean it up. No, no, no. It's not going to get cleaned up. Now, we can put some righteousness in places. Listen, I thank God for uh, the Speaker of the House. I thank God that we just got a Christian man. I thank God any time a Christian runs for office. I think that if you're a Christian in here today and you want to make a difference in a school board or you want to make a difference as a town or a city, hey, then, then go at it. Run for office. I'll back you. I'll do whatever I can to help you if you're sticking with the Bible. But can I tell you something? We can have every one of you run for something but it's not going to clean up the morality of our nation and the morality of the world. So as the world gets more wicked, what's God going to do? God will purge the sins of His people. Look at this second vision. If you thought the first one was weird, look at the second one. There's a vision of a woman in a basket. The Bible calls it an ephah says this in verse number 5, Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? I believe, I honestly believe that Zachariah is like, What is this? Well, you know, you and I would say the same thing. Well, what is this? Notice what he says. And he said, this interpreting angel, This is an ephah that goeth forth and he said, moreover, this is the resemblance through, again, that same phrase, through the, all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent. A talent is either 3,000 shekels or 95 pounds, 94 pounds. It's a, it's a heavy weight, a lid on this basket. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. So, in our example right here, the first one was a flying scroll. The second vision, in the first part of that second vision, is an ephah. It is a basket that would hold uh, 8 to 10 gallons. Now, I think this ephah uh, in this vision was probably bigger than life. It was big, like the scroll was, 30 feet by 15 feet. I would imagine that this ephah, this basket, was big enough to hold an example of a woman sitting in the midst of this basket, fearful, trying to get out. She knows that the judgment of God is about to be poured out. She's an example. We'll see that in just a minute. And on top of this basket is a big heavy lid. That tells me that, that whatever's inside the basket has 
been put there to stay in there. Now, notice what else the Bible says. And he said in verse number 8, now this is referring to the basket, to the, to the woman, this is wickedness. Now hold on a second. The angel is telling Zechariah about the woman in the basket. And he's saying the woman that is sitting in the basket, and by the way, anytime in the Hebrew you see wickedness or an abomination or sin, it's all referred to in the feminine gender. So this woman is the example of wickedness in that time. We'll get to that in just a moment. He said the woman is wicked. And then he says, and he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead, which is the lid, upon the mouth thereof, then lifted I up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women. And the wind, uh, and the wind was in their wings... For they had wings like the wings of a stork. Now get this. Two women appear. One woman in a basket, but two different women appear. Our third picture, and they have wings, large wings. Awesome wings that Zachariah could sing. And and these women are now taking this basket somewhere. Notice where they're taking it. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? So where are they taking the ephah? Where are they bringing that basket? And here's what the angel said. And he said unto me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Pedestal. Shinar goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. It's actually mentioned in, in Genesis 10 and 11. When, remember where they were building the Tower of Babel? Do you remember the people that came together and they wanted to build something up to the heavens? That was Shinar. And God looked down and saw that it was anti-God. It was anti-pleasing to the Lord. That was not His will. And He confounded those people and confused them. That was actually Babel. We call it the Tower of Babel. Where did that happen at? It happened in Shinar. And so he mentions Shinar here in Zechariah chapter number 5 and he says this, this basket is going to be picked up by the two women that have the wings and they're going to take this wickedness and they're going to deposit the wickedness on a pedestal in Shinar. Now we, we haven't got to chapter 6 yet. God's going to deal with this crowd in chapter 6 just like he does in Revelation chapter 18. Matter of fact God destroys Shinar, Babylon, in chapter 18 of Revelation in one day and in one hour. That is all the world system. That wickedness represents, I believe it's the same woman listed in Revelation 17 and 18. Uh, I believe it's the one the Bible calls her the great whore or the great harlot. All of the kings, all of the nations of the world, all of the merchants of the world has, has basically gotten in bed with this, this, this wickedness and it has, it has created, the Bible says it created a world system that is only waxing worse and worse and it's going to be deposited futuristically during the millennial reign. It will be deposited on a pedestal in 
Babylon and God will wipe them out. Some believe that this is the the one world church. This is the Roman Catholic church, the great harlot of the revelation. I'm not, uh, that's a whole different study and if you want to get into that, I would uh, definitely recommend you get in one of our equipping classes and you could learn about revelation. We have one I think that meets right now so you'd have to come to the earlier service. But if you want to know about Revelation 17 and 18, I highly recommend that. That's really not the application for us today. You say, Pastor, what would you, what, why are you telling us that God is going to destroy sin in every home that it goes into? We know sin does that. And God's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with the wickedness and the immorality and the lion and the thiefing and all of the, all of the nations that hate God. God's going to judge them. Why are you saying all of that today and what is the application? Well, I want to bring it, we've got to remember where the Jews have come from. The Jews had come from captivity in Babylon. They've come from Shinar. They They were in bondage. During their captivity, stay with me, during their captivity, those 70 years of captivity, those Jewish families had children. They were raised in Babylon. Those children knew not what it was like before captivity. They don't remember. They, were, they're, they're not, they wasn't alive. So they were born during the captivity. After the captivity, they, they, those 50,000 Jews that come over with, with uh, uh, Zerubbabel and with Joshua and with Zechariah, uh, they come over to raise up Jerusalem again and build the temple Haggai. Those that came over, they've been, they've been merchants. They've been sellers of goods. They've been successful businessmen and businesswomen. They have been in Babylon. And now they're leaving Babylon. But guess what? Babylon came with them. See, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. See, there's a big difference in being in the world, we were commanded to be in the world. Some Christians have this idea that they're supposed to build up a compound and, and keep themselves from the world and, and they're supposed to stay in here. Ooh, the world, ooh, you rub on it and it'll get you all messed up. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. We are to go in the world with the gospel but not to be of the world. The Bible says love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The most miserable person, listen to me, the most miserable person in this room today is the one who's trying to live a double life. You've got one foot in the world and you've got another foot in the church. You, you, and listen, let me just tell you something, bud. You may fool a bunch of people, but you're not fooling God. Your countenance tells it. You're a sneaky, slimy something. You slide in here like a little snake and you slide out. You think you've got everybody hoodwinked and you've got everybody just, oh, I'm this and that. Let me tell you something. The most miserable person in this room is the person that has tried to play Christian and play the world. You can't serve God and mammon. 
And these Jews that had come over from Babylon, many of their parents, I'm sure, was so tickled to death. Hey, they got enamored. Haggai's message was, hey, stop building your elaborate homes and start constructing the temple. That is what God wants us to do. And they started constructing the temple. And praise the Lord, they got the temple constructed. And we see that. And Nehemiah comes, I don't know, maybe a hundred years later, and he starts constructing the, the walls and, and, and the rubble. You understand the ruin, the mountain that laid in front of them. There was exciting times. But let me understand this. Stay with me. There was a group of people there that had the world all over them. There was a group of people there that only knew Babylon. And What's God doing here? God says, I'm going to purge. I'm going to purge the sins of the people while the world grows wicked and more wicked. You say, Pastor, what's the application? Although God is abundantly gracious, He has a full measure, listen to me, He has a full measure for judgment both of the nations and the individuals. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? Go with me to Genesis chapter 15. Don't miss this part. Genesis chapter 15. I want you to see something here. God has a full measure. He is gracious. He's abundantly gracious. Aren't you thankful for that? But there is a measure. I want you to see the wording in this covenant with Abraham. Notice what he says here in verse number 13. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, he said this, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. What's he talking about? He's talking about the people of Israel was going to be in bondage with Egypt 400 years. Now notice verse 14. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with a great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But I want you to notice the last, this verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for in the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now notice that phrase. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The picture of the woman inside the ephah. She's inside this basket-like thing. And of course that's the iniquity. That is wickedness is what the interpreting angel called that woman. She's the example of wickedness inside. So the wrath of God is going to be poured out because the basket is full of wickedness. Here in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham, hey, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But when it is full, I'm going to pour out my wrath. It sounds like to me, even in Genesis chapter 6, when he warned the people that he's going to destroy the world with a flood, he destroyed it. Uh, he gave uh, the, the nation or he gave the people through Noah 120 years to repent. After that 120 years, they built an ark and they got on the ark and the door shut and everyone outside the ark perished. 
It sounds like to me that God has a limit. God has, He'll allow the sin for a while. It's not that He winks at it. It's not that He turns His head at it. But in His sovereignty, He allows that sin of a nation to exist for a while. But when that basket fills and it is running over, God's wrath will be poured out. When I read that, I thought to myself, how, I wonder how much America's basket has in it. Let me tell you something. We cannot go on and on and on the way that we are without God's wrath poured out on us. The other thing is this. How's your tank? Is it on empty or full? My application to you this morning is this. Listen to me. As a Christian, I'd try to keep the Spirit of God in that fullness as I preached last week. The fullness of the Spirit of God. When your tank is on full of the Spirit, praise the Lord. When your tank is on empty of sin, praise the Lord. You say, Pastor, what's the application? Keep your tank empty. You do not want it full. Why? Because God's wrath will be poured out on a nation and on an individual. And so we understand that we should make our, we should try to keep our tank on empty. Here's the second application. When these Jews came over from Babylon, it wasn't idolatry that was their problem. It was commercialism. Many of the Jews were born in Babylon. They became successful. They became businessmen. And if the worldly commercial spirit infects the child of God, the results will be this. Listen. The result will be twisted values. The result will be confused priorities and the result will be craving for wealth and positions. What do we see in today? Twisted values, confused priorities, and craving for wealth and position. Will you turn one last place with me? 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. I want to show you what the Lord reminded me, especially around the time of Thanksgiving. There's something I'm going to speak to our church this evening about, and that is contentment. Contentment is a key component to Thanksgiving. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, let as many, uh, I'm going to just, I can't read the whole chapter for sake of time. Go, go down to verse number 6. I was going to read some of that chapter, but just go down for, for time's sake to chapter First uh, Timothy 6, cha- uh, verse number 6. The Bible says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish, hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We see, and this is, by the, by the way, that's from the Apostle Paul to a young Timothy, a young son in the faith. Timothy, get your priorities right. Timothy, money's going to make your ministry reach more people. 
Money's not the problem. The love of money's the problem. It's what you're in love with is the problem. And he said, Timothy, get your priorities right. But don't let sin control you. Don't let sin come in your life. Hey, deal with that sin. Examine yourselves. It was the late evangelist Billy Sunday who said this. I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as i got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. And I'll bite it as long as I've got teeth. And when I'm toothless, I'll gum it until I go home to glory or it goes home to perdition. You know what? I believe that's God's view of sin too. God hates it. God hates it in the life of the believer. God hates it in the life of the unbeliever. And my friend, if you are a part of this church or even under the sound of my voice this morning and you have sin in your life, I know we're all sinners. I'm not up here telling you I don't have sin. I'm human and I am a sinner. And I do have to live by this standard just like you do. The same book. The Bible even tells a preacher to live above reproach. In a lot of ways, the standard for me is a little different than the standard for you. It's higher. And it should be. I can't get up here and preach to you something that I'm not living. But at the same time, understand this. If we know that sin is our flesh, it's what we do. Let's try to get our tank as empty as possible. You say, Pastor, how do I empty my tank? Confess it to a holy God. Get in the book. Pray. The Bible says if we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive our sin. Thank God it's forgiven. How is it forgiven? By the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid for that sin, so why are you letting it in your life? Why are you letting it dominate you and reign in your life? Listen to me. Get that sin out. God's going to judge the sinner. Oh, listen, I'd much rather say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'd rather even go to man and say, I'm sorry for what I've done than go and let God deal with me for, for not doing those things. 